Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Plugged In, a post-media podcast taking you down Canada's electric vehicle highway. I'm your host, Andrew McCready. Today's show is a wide-ranging one, as my guest is well-versed and well-involved in a number of sustainable initiatives. As you'll hear, Jamie Keach can talk with authority on subjects as varied as carbon credits, extreme e-racing, rare earth mining, and the challenges facing our electrical grid as we move towards higher electric vehicle adoption. Jamie is the executive chairman and co-founder of Vancouver-based carbon offset investment firm Vita Carbon a company that focuses on financing high-quality, sustainable carbon credit projects globally. The Canadian company is also the title sponsor of Sir Lewis Hamilton's X44 Vita Carbo Racing Extreme E Team, which is the current reigning champion of the global sustainable off-road racing series and is currently leading the standings in Season 3. In the inaugural Extreme E season, the team placed second behind Nico Rosberg's team, but won the Sustainability Award, which goes to the team that drives the most fans to commit to steps that contribute towards a greener future. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Jamie. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Andrew. Before we get to all the fascinating things that you and your company do, um, I'd like to find out what the first EV you ever drove was and your impressions of it at the time. Ooh. So probably the first EV that I ever drove in wasn't actually an EV. It was actually a a hydrogen-powered car. And I wouldn't say I drove in it. It's probably a little too generous. Uh, when I was a kid, my mother worked for a hydrogen fuel cell company. And they had a hydrogen-powered car that was in the demo stage. This was in like the 90s. And I think I got a ride around the parking lot when I was like 10 years old. So that was my first experience to that. So I was maybe a little ahead of the curve on that. But I didn't get in one again until, uh, you know, probably the last five years when I rode a Tesla as an Uber. And that was my first time in a Tesla. And I was like, oh, this is <laughs> pretty cool. I can see a little <laughs> bit of what the fuss is about. Right, right. So I guess, you know, given your background, your mom and stuff, uh, technology has been in your life a long time. Yeah, I mean, I'm an engineer by training. Uh, I have an undergrad in mining engineering, a master's in environmental engineering. My father is an electrical engineer. Uh, my sister is an engineer. My brother-in-law is an engineer. So we, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of that in my family. You don't want to play Trivial Pursuit with you guys. <laughs> well, I think once you get outside of math, we kind of we, we start <laughs> to fall down a little bit. Okay, well, let's stick let's stick to the script then. Um, so, so this company that you co-founded, um, Vita Carbon, can you can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Vita is a carbon credit investment firm. What we do is we find projects around the world 
that are generating carbon credits into the voluntary carbon market. We provide those companies with the capital they need to basically become stronger and generate more carbon credits. So they might be expanding a project, they might be uh, buying new assets, they might be improving efficiency, whatever it is, we basically act as the financier for those projects. And we do that in exchange for a percentage of the carbon credits that they generate. And you know, for, for viewers and listeners that haven't heard of this before, there's about 174 different ways to create carbon credits. This ranges from things like planting trees and conserving rainforests, uh, to improved agricultural efficiency, to um, improved energy efficiency. Like one project we have is replacing wood burning stoves um, with high efficiency stoves in places like India and Ghana. And so there's dozens of different ways to do this. And what we go do is go out and find really experienced operators, people that are great at doing what they do. And we help bring them the financial backing to basically expand their business and create more carbon credits. So, so what is the advantage of a company in, in amassing carbon credits? Why do it? So for us, uh, I mean, the economics are very simple. We're looking to go out and create carbon credits at a price that is cheaper for what we can sell them for. So this is similar to any other sort of commodity business like the mining business or the oil and gas business, you know, you want to pull that product out and you want to sell it at a higher price. And so that's how the operators make money. That's how we make money. But then these credits are sold to some of the biggest companies in the world. We've already done one sale to Shell Energy, uh, but all of the big energy producers, mining companies, tech companies, airlines have committed to buying carbon credits. And they'll be spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on these things over the coming decade. Yeah, so certainly a growth industry. Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned Africa as, as um, an agricultural one, that, that we, or the, the burning of the, the changing of the, the how people are burning things. What other kind of projects um, around the world have you guys been involved in? Maybe some of the more interesting ones. I'm sure they're all interesting, but any stick out in your mind? Well, I'll give you an example. In Brazil, for example... We are conserving tens of thousands of hectares of Amazonian rainforest in Amazonia state. Uh, you know, this is an area that affects hundreds of local families, affects indigenous families. It's helping to reinvest um, capital into the communities and into community-led businesses. So that's a big one for us, a big priority. Um, in India, we're working with uh, rice farmers on hundreds of hectares of rice fields to reduce uh, methane emissions. So methane is something like seven to, time, seven to nine times more negatively impactful than CO2, for example. Mm -hmm. And rice fields are actually the biggest generator of methane, a human-made generator of methane after cattle. So if we can find a way to reduce those emissions, which we actually can by various water management techniques, that reduces a huge amount of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. So those are two things we're working on right now. Uh, we're also well underway on a mangrove uh, restoration and conservation project in Mexico and lots of other things. Anything in Canada? Anything, any projects in Canada? So we don't have any in Canada or the U.S. yet that we've actually sort of completed, but we are working on negotiations on several of them, and we hope to have some uh, later this year. Right. Are a lot of companies engaged in this now? As I said, it's a growth industry, so I'm sure every year passes, more and more companies are getting involved. Yeah, so... The short answer is yes, but not enough. So there are a lot more doing this than there were a year ago or five years ago, and certainly more than you know six or seven years ago. 
but we're nowhere near where we need to be. So the demand for carbon credits from the big emitters, the big polluters of the world, far, far, far outweighs the supply. And so what needs to happen is a lot of money needs to go into this sector, developing these projects, educating people on how to create and build these projects. And there are very few people in this space that really have the expertise and the experience to do it. So there's a huge amount of education. Uh, there's a huge amount of capital that will need to be deployed. So yeah, it's growing, but we got a long way to go. Yeah, a great opportunity, I'm sure, for young engineers, right? I mean, a, a, an expanding field, sustainability and things, just like in the electric vehicle world, so many young, yeah. bright minds it's, have been attracted to that. So I assume that's people you look out for in that world. You know, I get um, emails probably every week from uh, sort of junior engineers, students, people trying to figure out their career. Uh, it, it, it attracts a lot of talent to this industry because it's obviously addressing, you know, a huge global problem something a lot of people are extremely passionate about. So it's been, uh, it's been fun. It's been really, really, really cool. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, something else that sounds like his fun is a bit of an offshoot for you guys. Um, Extreme E, you guys are a sponsor of a team. Um, the Extreme E series, of course, is, a, is an off-road global racing series using electric vehicles. How did, you, how did your company get involved in this series? Yeah, this is um, kind of through a series of serendipitous events that I could never have possibly planned out, I would say. <laughs> so, you know, we're a company that sells a product like everybody else. Uh, we sell carbon credits. Our, our customer base are the biggest companies in the world. And we're constantly on the lookout for ways to get on their radar, to show them what we're doing, to really highlight the importance of carbon credits as a tool uh, to fight climate change, to to fight greenhouse gas emissions. And we started looking for ways to advertise and to get in front of people. And I guess kind of, I just come from a Formula One race in Mexico. And I thought, God, like, look at the sponsorship on these things. I'd love yeah. to get involved in something like this. But, you know, frankly, we're a startup company. This is way outside our price range. But, you know, I kind of have this problem when I get excited about something, I can't shut up about it. And I just kept telling everyone I knew this. And then eventually, like a friend of a friend of a friend of mine who was happened to be at dinner with me said, you know, one of my friend's older sisters is Lewis Hamilton's manager. Oh, and I was like, no way. Like, can you get me in front of them? Can you can we talk to them? And I did get a meeting uh, and I kind of pitched her idea. We'd love to work with you. We'd love to offset you. We'd love to do anything. And I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, OK, like get in line. We'll get back to you. You know what I mean? We got yeah. a lot of things going on. They're very, very busy and, you know, they've got every opportunity in the world. And then, I don't know, four to six months later, I got a phone call and they said, hey, you know, we actually have this electric off-road racing team that you guys could potentially be a perfect partner for. And I dove into it and looked into it and, you know, we were really excited. They were really excited. It was a great match. And that's, that's kind of how it came about. It, it it has been a great match and a successful one. There's been two seasons so far. We're in our third. Um, you guys placed second in the first season and you won last year. So that's right. That, yeah, we were the champions, which was pretty I mean, cool. that's awesome for obviously the race team. It seems uh, Lewis Hamilton or Sir Lewis Hamilton um, is a winner in, in many regards as a, as a racer and as a team owner. Yeah, so, uh, he seems to be able to do no wrong. And uh this is so he owns the team and Vita is the sponsor of the team. And, you know, Lewis, as I'm told, was keen on getting involved in this because he's quite passionate about climate change. 
right. he's quite aware, obviously, of the impact F1 cars and that lifestyle can have on climate change. And he's trying to, you know, make a positive impact and and highlight the importance of this. And this was a, a an important project to him, so we were very, very happy and lucky and excited to be involved in it. Yeah, the the series philosophy seems to be a good fit with your corporate philosophy, very sustainable yeah. and and a way of showcasing different technologies. Yeah, so Extreme E was founded by the same guys that did Formula E. So Formula E is basically the electric car equivalent of F1. They rip around a track. Extreme E is a bit different. It's an off-road race. They race in five different places around the world every year, and they focus on places that have been impacted by climate change. So they've raced in Greenland. They've raced in Sardinia in Italy. They've raced in Uruguay and Chile and Scotland this year. And it's all over the world. And then every place they go, they go on a track that's already been kind of impacted. They're, they're obviously not trying to rip up any sort of pristine area. So it's areas that have already had, a, had an impact. And they try to bring awareness to the impacts of climate change on that specific location, as well as doing some sort of remedial project. They call them legacy projects to, to help uh, improve the, the area or offset um, greenhouse gas emissions or some sort of positive impact there. Yeah. And, and again, Lewis Hamilton, as you said, is so involved in, in climate change issue and diversity and social issues. And mm-hmm. that seems to be paramount in the, se- in the series also in that the, there's two, two drivers for each team one a man, one a woman, and that's yeah. that's pretty that's pretty cool too. It's cool. It's like a like a relay race almost. Like first, it, you know, they, the teams decide who starts first. So either the man or the woman rips around the track for a few laps, and then he gets out and kind of like tags in the other one, and she'll go and rip around the track. And you know, there's various heats, and they kind of progress through the heats. And at the end of the weekend, you know, one team wins. Yeah, and and a showcase for the for the talent of of all these drivers, male or female. Mm-hmm. Many of many of them very accomplished um, off road racers, right? Rally to car yeah. racers, and um, even Le Mans winners, and and the like. So our male driver is Sebastian Loeb, who's the most winningest rally racer in history. He's won everything. I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think he's won <laughs> uh, whatever the biggest race is nine times. You know, he's he. He kind of like almost ruined the sport for everyone else for a while because he just right. consistently won for nearly a decade. So well, like we like a, Lewis, like Lewis Hamilton did to F one, <laughs> much like Lewis Hamilton exactly. <laughs> so we were pretty pumped to have him. Like he's done a great job. Uh, uh, but also the female driver uh, Christina Gutierrez has you know done such a phenomenal job. And what's interesting in the races, what's pretty cool, is. Often the winner is really determined by the female driver because right. often the men are, they tend to be so close. And then yeah. the women, there tends to be more uh, uh, differences in the times. And Christina, I would say, is was like totally instrumental in us winning. She's consistently outperformed and it was it's cool to see. It's cool to get to know them a little bit. And uh, yeah, we've been very proud to be a part of it. Yeah, the first the first female um, Spanish woman to to finish the Dakar race, I believe, when yeah. she was a rookie. When she was a rookie, so super accomplished. And she's a dentist. And she's a dentist. <laughs> Is she? So she's she's an impressive an impressive individual for sure. And I and I did see on the the Extreme E website that um, Sebastian is a certified electrician. Okay, I didn't know that. Uh, there you go. I think, so <laughs> I don't think that guy does much electrician work these days. He's won so many races. I don't. I think he's. Uh, when he's not in the car, I think he's taking it pretty easy. He's got a pretty yeah. good life. Well, they probably have, it's good to have a fallback career just in case. For sure. Okay, we're just going to take a break here and uh, be back in a little while. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. Okay, so um, I can't let you get away without speaking about mining, Jamie. You are so, um, you know, educated in so many things. Obviously, the, the, the carbon capture, the extreme E. But now I'd like to kind of take a more macro view. Um, something we talk about a lot on Plugged In is, is the mining industry. Um, obviously extremely important for electric vehicles in the raw materials that are required. So from, from your study, from your look into all these things, how well is Canada positioned to be a global player in the, in terms of the raw materials required in electric vehicles? Canada. So that's a good question. Um, Canada is well positioned in many ways, but struggles in other ways. Uh, this is going to be, like just globally to even come close to meeting demand for lithium, for nickel, for copper is going to be extremely challenging, right? Because one, we need to meet the raw materials required for an electric vehicle. And if you look at an electric vehicle, they require something like 10,000 10, times the amount of lithium required as for like a cell phone battery, for example, right? Right, so right. We're going to need to mine a tremendous amount of lithium, tremendous amount of nickel. Uh, there's something like 40 times the amount of copper in a, an electric vehicle today versus, say, like a Mustang in the 1960s. So we're using a lot more raw materials. But the other component that I think people really forget and negate when they're thinking about this is the fact that the grid really, really needs to be upgraded to meet the electricity demand, right? So yeah. what's really interesting was last year, California, one week, um, they set targets for every vehicle sold in California has to be an EV. I can't remember the exact day. I think it was 2035, something like yep. that. Right. That exact same week, uh, they sent out a warning and a request to people to please not charge their electric vehicles at home during peak hours because they were unable to meet demand. Yeah, mixed message there. Yes, and that goes to highlight uh, the dissonance there and the you know incredible amount of resources that are going to need to be applied here um, in order to meet that demand. So to, to answer your question, Canada is very well positioned in that, right? So something about 40% of the world's copper comes from Peru and Chile. And both Peru and Chile are politically and socially volatile in a way they have not been in a very long time. And that puts the world's biggest copper producing region really at risk. Now, Canada, particularly BC, is blessed with copper. 
Uh, you know, there's multiple producing copper mines in British Columbia. There's multiple deposits that have been discovered that can and should be copper mines. However, it's very challenging to get a mine permitted in British Columbia. So from discovery to, you know, production, on average, it's like 15 to 20 years these days. So it used to be about 10 years. It's, it's increased by at least 50%. So if Canada is going to be a participant in this sort of EV wave, we're going to have to prioritize. Um, we're really going to have to prioritize getting these projects producing. And we should, right? Because Canadian copper projects will be the cleanest copper projects in the world. They will meet the highest degree of environmental standards. And in British Columbia, in Quebec, the vast majority will be powered by hydroelectric power. So they'll be, right. you know, truly the greenest copper that exists. I think we kind of owe it to the world to produce this. Um, and I hope we do. Yeah, it seems like the, there is certainly no shortage of um, of uh, political will to push the electric vehicle revolution um, when it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to manufacturing. I mean, a lot of money in Ontario is being spent to support jobs that are around that industry. But as you say, down the hall in the mine in the mining ministry there there there's this still kind of old attitude about things so that needs to get kickstarted for sure totally irrelevant if we don't have the raw materials to get there and i'll give you you know an example of this gm just last week announced they were investing 650 million dollars into a into a lithium project uh, in the us now i've never seen a car company do something like that before and i think it's a sign of things to come um you know, one last stat I'll give you. To meet the demand for electric vehicles, we need to mine as much copper, but we need to mine more copper in the next 50 years than we've done in the entirety of human history up to this point. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I mean, certainly I have critics on of this show, um, not specific to, to any topics, but just the big picture, the big picture of EVs. And, and those are the kind of stats that they'll throw out. Um, as you mentioned earlier, that the electric, the, our, our grid just isn't capable of everybody on my street having an EV and plugging at the same time. So, I mean, do you have confidence that we're going to get there? I mean, is it going to be, again, we rely on human ingenuity that has bailed us out of so many problems through our civilization? Uh, I would say yes and no. I think we are going to get there. I believe that, you know, the, the biggest countries, the biggest investors, the biggest corporations in the world have really decided that this is a priority and uh, uh, are putting our trajectory in that path. What I do think is that they are massively underestimating the timelines. You know, we are not all going to be driving EVs in the next five years, but probably the next 10 years. I think this is like a 25 year plus plan. And honestly, I think they miss half the equation, right? Like whether you're driving an EV or not is totally irrelevant if you are powering that EV with coal-fired power plants, you're not, you're not, you're just, you're just transferring the emissions down the line, right? So in British Columbia, you know, we're, we're great here. We're a perfect environment for EVs because we're largely hydroelectric power. It's totally justifiable. But still in the U.S., something like 30, 34% of power comes from coal-fired power plants. So the people driving those EVs, I mean, they might as well just be driving conventional vehicles. So we really need to get our energy grid up to standards to really even justify the transition. And that, that all has to happen simultaneously. And there needs to be political will to push that through. Yeah. And, and again, it's what I've learned from the EV revolution is it's, it's extremely regional. 
Um, you know, even within a country, it's regional um, to say nothing of the world. I mean, when you're working in these projects in Africa and to, and to kind of get your head around, would, the, would they have EVs here in 25 years to take over everything? Very <laughs> Most unlikely. Most of the places we work in Africa or India don't have any sort of power, right? right. And that's, right. you know, we can spend a three-hour conversation about that. That, like, <laughs> there is one of the greatest indicators of life expectancy and ch child mortality rates is access to cheap power. So there's a huge part of the world's population that doesn't have anything except for burning wood in effectively a hut. And so we can't leave those people behind either, right? That's not reasonable or fair to expect them to have no power uh, so that we can hit certain targets, right? No one's gonna buy into that. They wanna have a higher quality of life. So. I think we need to make this energy transition. I think it should, it is and should be a priority for humanity and for the world and for the leaders, but it really needs to be thought out in a lot of nuance and how you bring people with you because otherwise I think, you know, people will rebel, people will protest. You know, when they see the costs of living go up 10, 20, 30%, that's gonna decimate uh, the poorest people in the population. So that's something that needs to be contemplated as part of this. Yeah, I mean, anytime I see renewables and new ideas about renewables, I often think of, um, you know, Africa and these these places that don't have electricity. And it, it, they're kind of, it's like they never had landlines, but then suddenly they got phones because of cell phones. So they kind of leapt that technology and it, you almost feel like that's exactly what's going to happen. When they do get electricity, it's not going to be from a generator station powered by whatever. It's going to be a renewable. Yeah. And there's a lot of places in the world where that is the appropriate choice, right? Right. Uh, and then there's other places where it's not. And it's going to be having to make those geographical um, decisions, right? Like a good example, you know, I don't know if you want to go down this road, but a good example is Germany, right? Germany, in theory, has, I think it's 200% capacity in renewable energy. The problem is they don't have energy storage for that. So when it's not windy, when it's not sunny... It's very problematic. And now what are they doing? They're firing up full fire power plants. Germany's emissions are way higher than they used to be because they removed nuclear energy or in the process of doing so. They've now been cut off from natural gas by the Russians. Their renewables don't hit the targets they're supposed to be hitting consistently. And so, you know, what happens? Do you let people freeze to death or do you fire up the coal fire power plants? And this is idealistic planning and not reality planning. And that's that's part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, we're we're as the saying goes, we're living in interesting times, and uh, you know, we get on this on this show, we get very focused on EVs, and I'm always just I enjoy it simply because you know, in 30 years, look back on this time and think what a transition time. But in the bigger sector of the energy grid, I mean, what a transition time we're going through. So it's going to be one of the most problematic transitions in human history, also one of the biggest opportunities in human history, and I think how people and investors and entrepreneurs and whomever position themselves will make all the difference. And I think done wrong, a lot of people could get left behind, but done right, it could be one of the great transitions and wealth creators for millions and millions of people. Well, let's leave it on that positive note. Thanks very much for joining us today, Jamie. My pleasure. Jamie Keach is the executive chairman and co-founder of Vancouver-based carbon offset investment firm, Vita Carbon. It's having guests like Jamie on the Plugged In podcast that really makes it enjoyable to delve into the present and future of the electric vehicle revolution. 
His company Vita Carbon is a prime example of the multi-layered economic ecosystem that promotes and fosters environmental sustainability, and how so many seemingly disparate industries are in fact very interconnected and working towards the same big picture goal. That is, a cleaner and sustainable planet that leaves no one behind. I also applaud the company's involvement in Extreme E. I hope hearing about it has piqued your curiosity about this exciting race format. The next X-Race weekend is March 11th and 12th in Saudi Arabia, followed by a two-race event in Scotland in mid-May. To learn more, visit extreme-e.com, where you can also find the social channels to watch live races. That's it for this episode. Thanks very much to my guest, Jamie Keach, my exceptional producer, Adam Foster, and you for joining me on another electrifying journey down the EV highway. We always welcome your comments and criticisms via email at pluggedinpostmedia.com. For your dose of all things automotive, including up-to-date information on new EVs in Canada, be sure to check out driving.ca, where you'll find the best in breaking news, videos, and reviews. And be sure to subscribe to Plugged In wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode, and you'll also be able to listen to past episodes. And also check out the other three great Driving.ca podcasts. The Driving Podcast, Truck Guy, and the recently launched Motormouth Podcast. Thanks as always for listening. Thank you.